Welcome to Brain Stories Live. I'm Casal Barry. This is Selena Ray. Um, and so this is new. This is new to us as it is to you. Uh, who's seen or heard our podcast? Ooh, reasonable numbers. Okay. So in the podcast and tonight, we've got pretty much the same format. First of all, we talk about the science, what people are doing, what our guests are doing, what they're researching. And then we talk about what makes them tick, the journey that brought them to where they are. So we're going to be doing the same thing tonight. Um, by way of audience research, who have we got here? Have we got anyone, any undergraduates here? Show of hands? No undergraduates, I saw you there, no. Um, <laughs> any any postgraduates? A few of those. Anyone who's not at the university at all? A few of the, okay, good, good mix, right, fantastic. Now, now we know who we're aiming for. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Selena. Well, welcome everybody and thank you for coming to join us for this experiment. Um, so as Caswell hinted, at, this is uh, there's a series of firsts this evening. It's our first ever event or recording where we've had more than one guest. So we will welcome a panel up to the stage in a moment. And it's also our first ever live recording. Hopefully not our last. Please be nice to us so that we come back and do this again. Um, the reason we decided to do a live recording is because we wanted to meet some of our listeners, but also because this year is the 15th anniversary of the UCL Neuroscience Domain. And so the UCL Neuroscience Domain is a network across UCL that tries to connect scientists working in different disciplines, bring us together, so so that we can work more effectively, but also to do outreach events so that we can showcase our work more broadly. And so you're all very welcome tonight and we're really looking forward to sharing um, some of our amazing scientists with you. Um, we will. The way the evening will work is we will do this in two parts. The f in a second, we'll welcome our panel up and in the first part, we will discuss their research, where they think their field is going and what they're excited about. We'll then take a short interval in about 50 minutes time. And after the break, we'll get a little bit more into the start, the scientist story. So why did they become interested in their research areas? What did they study? What key career decisions did they make that brought them here? We really want this to be interactive, so you're very welcome to ask questions throughout. Just give one of us a wave and we will come to you. Um, if people have questions but they don't really want to stick their hand up, I've got, as you can see in my hand, I'm clutching a few pens and I've got a little bit of paper and I'll leave them down at the front so you can write things down in the interval and then we'll ask them at the break. And so I'll hand back to Caswell. We have an organising theme today. So the, the topic, the thing that unites our three guests is neuro-AI. <clears throat> and so what I'm going to do is attempt to define what that is now. And I'm sure when I guess come on, they'll tell me I'm wrong and that it's nothing like that. So here's my working definition of neuro-AI. So it's a, a portmanteau of neuroscience and AI. The point being that these two fields sort of share a common lineage. And so there's sort of a natural connection between them. And what that means is at various points, there's been a sort of exchange of information. So some of the ideas that are sort of driving AI development now have been borrowed from neuroscience, the ideas of neural networks, the ideas of reinforcement learning, the way animals learn, things like convolutional networks, which is how we think some of the visual system works. And that's been happening for a while, but what's increasingly been happening over the last sort of five or 10 years is neuroscientists have got kind of wise to this and have been taking lessons from AI. 
And so neuroscientists are increasingly using machine learning tools to deal with their data, maybe to diagnose diseases, but also using these sort of neuro uh, machine learning models as models of the brain, telling us, you know, if there's a problem, how ought this be solved? And then we can go and look in the brain to see if the brains respond like the machine learning models. So we're going to find out whether the guests agree. You've heard enough from me already, so I'm going to say the magic word. Uh, let's bring on the guests. And hopefully, three eager researchers will burst through the curtain. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us this evening. And we're very excited to have the discussion with you tonight. Perhaps we can start just quickly by each of you introducing yourself, telling us your job title and where you are based in the infrastructure of the university. Um, Rick, I'll start with you. Okay, hi, I'm Rick Adams. I work in the Center of Medical Image Computing, Computer Science, but also in neuroscience in the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience. Uh, and also one day I'm a consultant psychiatrist, so I do clinical work and see patients as well. Busy man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Deeksha. I'm Deeksha Gupta. I'm a senior research fellow at the Sainsbury Welcome Center. Um, I sort of sit between systems and computational neuroscience. And yeah. <laughs> Benedetto. Hello, hi. I'm Benedetto De Martino, and I'm a cognitive neuroscientist working at the ICN, the Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience. Not much fantasy in there. It's always cognitive neuroscience. <laughs> So maybe we can start just by giving the floor to each of you for a few minutes to expand, maybe introduce your research in, in kind of general terms. What are you working on? What sort of techniques are you using? And why is this important? Um, so if we go in reverse order this time, Benedetto, would you like to start? Sure. I do mostly my work uh, is in human cognitive neuroscience. Um, uh, I always, uh, strange, I mean, I come from molecular biology, but haven't seen uh, like a little mouse for a long time besides. <laughs> this is for part the, the two. The occasional <laughs> one. <laughs> um, so we do use neuroimaging methods like fMRI, EEG, MEG, but mostly my lab is also interested in computational modeling and things that are like crossroad between neuroscience, economics, and machine learning. I've just completed my PhD. And during my PhD, I was studying how different brain areas, especially like corticostriatal circuitry, coordinate the activity to do this like very fundamental computation of how do you evaluate different pieces of like sensory evidence, and how does that decision process evolve, and finally, how do you come up with the decision that you want to take in this real world. And now, uh, as a postdoc, I'm developing a paradigm to study um, compositional generalization. And compositional generalization is basically how do you use bits of your past knowledge to compose uh, sort of intelligent seeming behavior. So for instance, this is like a whole spectrum of behaviors which falls un under, under this. So on like the simplistic end would be if you have picked up some chords, then you can pick up a new song very easily because you can use those bits of knowledge you've learned in the past, compose them together, and pick up a new song very easily. And on the more complex cognitive end would be that if you learn a few words, then you can use them in new contexts, in new sentences to convey all sorts of meaning. So that's what I'm sort of trying to study hippocampal prefrontal interactions during this sort of behavior now. 
I enjoyed the use of the phrase seemingly intelligent <laughs> behaviour. I think that might be one for us to pick apart <laughs> later. <laughs> Eric. So uh, I work in this kind of subfield called computational psychiatry. And um, there's a mixture of things that goes on there. I've done bits of all of them. So sometimes using computational models of cognition to work out how m brain processes proceed, uh, just like uh, these guys do. But then also to think how they might go wrong. So how perception might become a hallucination, for example. Um, and then also uh, biophysical models um, of imaging data to try and infer uh, neurobiology and neurobiological properties of the brain, um, which is uh, so to link to things like drug targets and that kind of stuff. And then lastly, uh, kind of more machine learning based methods to, to analyze very large data sets, for example, p comparing patients and controls and this kind of thing. So I just wanted to pick up on some of the things you were saying, Rick. So would you say it's true that we're already at a point where uh, machine learning models are, are useful in the clinic? Or is that is that something that's yet to come? Uh, so I, I'd say it very much depends which clinic. So, so in some areas, they're really kind of ready to go, it looks like, from how well they work. Um, so ophthalmology, there was a really landmark collaboration between DeepMind and the Institute of Ophthalmology uh, down the road, where they had a million labeled retinal image scans, and this network learned how to diagnose diabetic eye disease, hypertensive eye disease, and tell the age and sex of the person in a way that they don't know wow. how, it, how it can do. Um, but when the problem is uh, brain data, like structural MRI data or functional MRI data is such a, a it's, there's so m many more data points in there. There's like 100,000 data points instead of the number of pixels in a retinal image. Um, and we don't have a million labeled scans. We have like m maybe 1,000 or 2,000. Uh, it's really nowhere near as, as good as that in psychiatry. So, so some clinics, yes, dermatology, lots of radiology, ophthalmology, watch out, but not psychiatry just yet. Are, are you optimistic or do you think this is the sort of lack of labels and lack of clear distinctions just doesn't mean you we don't we don't know enough yet to train a, a model to predict these things or uh <coughs> so i th i think for the short medium term the way you would get results out of those kinds of methods is using a more hypothesis led approach and maybe trying to you know uh discriminate between uh groups who res who you know respond to one treatment or another treatment and if you if you haven't if you can collect enough data uh, and you know in animals where those receptors are you can tell the machine to only look in the brain where those receptors are per, for example and reduce the dimensionality that way something like that you know um, but to just chuck everything in and hope for the best I don't think is going to work until you have uh, millions of scans I'm keeping an eye on my watch because I know we'll probably chat all night <laughs> otherwise. Um, I think this is really a fascinating area, but I wondered if just for the benefit of anyone in the audience who is maybe completely new to the concept of neuro-AI, if um, one of the panelists could kind of just break it down a little bit, what we mean when we talk about things like learning data sets, machine learning, and then how that can be used to then look at new data sets. So just really the kind of fundamentals of some of the things that we've just been talking about. 
Okay. I'll uh, give it a go. And uh, you know, I've been working a long time in a field that was called neuroeconomics, and it seems that uh, seems some of the trick is put the neuro in front of another word and then <laughs> trying to figure out what that means. Um, <laughs> so the thing is uh, the way in which I see it, and there's some things we're getting used to now because there's been this kind of explosion of uh, AI. Um, is just methods that we add in the field that they just got much, much more sophisticated. They are like, you know, statistical learning method and so on. But the, the new things is the fact that, that unlike um, other type of engineeristic approach in which you, as an engineer, you kind of engi engineering what the things has to do, here you're engineering the, the learning architecture. So you're practically engineering not what, in the case that uh, he was talking about, they didn't engineering something specifically for the eye, it's engineering some architecture that it doesn't care if it's an eye image or whatever, like a scan from an airport. And then through this like massive training, normally it's a training through labeling, so this was the reason why he was saying the problem is we do not have enough labeled scan, the machine start to understand this association, this relation. Now, this is uh, something quite a bit different from the way you learn and the small children learn. So in a way, um, the big challenge either is getting this massive data or understanding something more about human learning. Have a small children, I mean, they're not so small anymore for a dad, they're always so small, but when they learned what horse is, they didn't need a million horses, a billion horses to detect what horse is. You show them four horses, and since then they can pretty much detect what horse is. Um, so it's uh, a learning architecture. Now, neuro AI specifically um, is <laughs> clearly, uh, as we joke, not super clear what it is. Everybody sees in one way, but you can imagine both ways, like is the use of AI in neuroscience, you know, Caswell, for example, has done himself some work. He should be talking about that rather <laughs> in, in interview uh, in which has <laughs> like uh, he, he trained a machine to just detect like movement of mice and things, and and doing like some work that was very tedious and very long for human to do and not very well. And then uh, the most ambitious part of neuroai that unfortunately is one has under delivered, in my opinion, is the contribution of neuroscience to do exactly what I told you, to have a computer that is like my daughter, they see four horses and learn about horses. That was a big ambition of DeepMind, and I actually followed very closely because I was doing my PhD together with Demis Asabis at UCL, and you know, the big dream at the beginning of things like DeepMind was, let's have neuroscience inspire us. Now, 10 years, uh, had the line, not sure as much, uh, you know, you can see inspiration in everything. I mean, the idea of neural network is biologically inspired, but maybe at the moment has gone more in the other way, has mm -hmm. been more for neuroscience using this tool. Was satisfactory enough? It was super. <laughs> um, and I wonder if I might come back to you, Rick, just with a question about using AI in diagnostics. I guess you talked about the need for 
really big data sets and the availability of a, a sufficient number of scans to be able to, to kind of identify these patterns. What are the risks there? Because you, I could imagine a scenario where, you know, a, a machine learning or AI looks at a scan and says, oh, this is abnormal and it means this, but actually could it be that that scan has been taken in a different center on a different machine? And can we dis are we at a point yet where we can really distinguish those things? Yeah, so the I, I guess these issues uh, make it into the uh, general media. They're obviously super important and of great concern to lots of people. And um, the, the basic problem is the, the machine is only going to learn from what it sees, and literally just from what it sees. So the problem is um, the extent to which it can generalize that. We, we take generalizing knowledge for granted because we're so good at it, but um, computers are not necessarily. So just like you say, it can learn from extraneous details that it's not supposed to learn from. So for example, there was one case of a, uh, a program learning to diagnose pneumonias from chest x-rays and they discovered that it was it it was working because it, it learned that to diagnose the pneumonias because the people who were more severely ill had ECG leads on, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> because they didn't have time to take them off, and 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 that was uh, and that's how it diagnosed the pneumonia. And there are lots of other examples. Like I think I've read somewhere, but I can't. So don't quote me on this. As I can't remember the details. That uh, um, one of these call either ophthalmology or I think there's an ophthalmology deep net th that can diagnose these problems I was talking about was then subsequently tested on a whole bunch of retinal images in India I think possibly and and it didn't work um, and so you know the, there have to there has to be um, uh, training set data from all over the world from all kinds of different scanners if it's going to be a, a exported because obviously the hope is we could use this technology in places that are resource poor um, but obviously the absolute worst thing is going to happen if it's if it doesn't work uh, in those in those places so absolutely there's a there's a really good points actually I want to come back to those sort of questions of generalizability and sort of how equitable we can use these things but I just want to finish with one finish up on one of the points that Benedetto mentioned which was this sort of disappointment that the, the dream of neuro-AI, to sort of paraphrase, was that the information would go both ways. And at the moment, neuroscience is doing pretty well. But some people would claim, and indeed when I put on neuro-AI meetings, the lack of machine learning people would seem to indicate that actually the information isn't going back the other way so much. And um, an example, a sort of a, a story that was told me was, you know, it's a bit like birds and planes and flying. If you want to, if you want to build a flying machine, it's great to see birds at the beginning because they tell you that flying exists. But if you then spend 50 years trying to build something with flappy, feathery wings, you're not going to get very far. You need to give up and try something different. And the implication being that maybe we've taken the inspiration from the brain, <clears throat> but actually we shouldn't be trying to copy it too closely to achieve what we want. Um, Dietra, I just wondered whether you've got any sort of thoughts uh, yeah. thoughts about that, whether whether you're disappointed or not, basically. I'm, I'm more optimistic. <laughs> uh, I think from a basic science perspective, I think the fact of uh, the kind of techniques which have been developed in AI of late have helped us make better models of like how neural responses look in the brain. 
But I think now is the time that we can take that inspiration from neuroscience back to AI models. So AI models tend to be really brittle, as you were saying, that they don't generalize well, they pick up on random features, whereas brain tends to learn functions which are very smooth and generalize well and are not brittle in the same way. And I'm optimistic that some of the properties, biological properties of the brain in that there are excitatory, excitatory and inhibitory neurons, they have a certain projection pattern, the architecture looks a certain way, all of these properties, if you like explored them, we would come up with something which is more robust in some way. And there's like inspiration to be drawn from those kinds of biological features, which might help build more robust systems, which are also more energy efficient, hopefully. Um, that's what I think, yeah. If I can actually uh, reply to you as well, I would have shared these things until probably six months ago. And, uh, and the thing is, after the explosion of uh, general language model, what has happened, a big shift in the field that I think being in academia, we don't know this so much. And the fact that at the beginning, the aspiration was this really long-term goal. And as I agree with you, neuroscience can be really useful to achieve this long-term goal. But now the economic pressure after you know, OpenAI released ChatGTP has been so strong that now a lot of effort in this company is now going to this general lingua language model that are very far away from the brain. And in a way, there is also good news in that for academia means <laughs> that there is a lot of work for us left. <laughs> uh, uh, but it's also a bit sad, the idea that at the beginning there was this idea now the best of science, and things was the dream of a lot of people, including people, uh, probably me being pessimistic now, maybe things will change, but the problem is, uh, and I, I think it's almost this as a political problem, if we delegate the study of this thing to industry, hoping the industry will do what we should do as academia without spending money and they'll do for us, there's a big risk because industry overreacts very quickly. And now industry is overreacting, in my opinion, to this general language model. It was the same reason when uh, there was a point in which Google was scanning all the book for the making this digital access. And a lot of university withdrew through finding, founding these things. But the problem is that Google hasn't need to do it. And at one point, they decide we stop to do it. And my wife, that is an archaeologist, I remember at the time, she was, oh, crap, and now no, there are no funding to, for doing that. So I think this is actually a really good point in which, because uh, it could be a really nice having a conversation with the industry, but I think academia has been sitting on their bum too much <laughs> uh, in uh, hoping uh, that uh, like uh, industry will do instead of us. But as we can see now, industry is might be taking a completely different path, and as Caswell say, might be interested in Neuenberg anymore, might be interested in playing, but we shouldn't really hope now we'll understand bird biology by Boeing, and we complain with Boeing that is not helping us with bird biology. <laughs> so that, that was my only, I mean. I think I agree. Like, I think engineering goals are different, and they're going to go a certain way. But if the real capitalist gains to be had by using this more efficient architecture, if you can find it through the brains, then they probably will co-opt it. But yeah, probably diverging in that way, yeah. Because, I mean, maybe it's worth one of you saying why, why you think uh, things like the sort of recent success, well, what Transformers are, what, what, they've, what successes they've driven, and, and maybe most importantly, why, 
Well, neuroscientists tend to think they're not good models of the brain. I know some, not everyone agrees. I'm, I'm on the fence, but <laughs> would one of you like to say something about that? I mean, uh, uh, I can, yeah, well, I, I actually, yeah. So Transformers I, I find quite interesting because I don't know much, I don't know a huge amount about them, um, but they essentially, um, they're like a kind of short-term memory unit in a, in, a, in a neural network that allows the network to kind of store information and let it reverberate for a short time um, while an input, a stream of input is coming in. And, and they have really revolutionized uh, the language models and speech recognition models because those models, unlike spatial um, uh, kind of visual models that need to integrate information over space, uh, to understand speech and to be able to predict the next word, which is how they train these models, uh, you need to integrate information over time. You can't just use the last word. You need to use the last few sentences. And, um, and the question is, does, is this how the brain predicts <coughs> speech? I mean, probably not exactly like this, but it definitely must do it something like this. And, and there's, there's a really interesting angle, I think, uh, related to computational psychiatry about, uh, relating to this, which is um, that in schizophrenia, the commonest kind of hallucination is auditory verbal hallucination. Like, uh, you can have all kinds of hallucinations, all kinds of modalities, but voices are the most common. And uh, the weird, it, it's a very strange thing that why is it specifically voices when you could hallucinate anything? And one reason may be that if, if there is, for example, dysfunction in receptors that help us integrate information over time, like NMDA receptors, maybe that function is, is really impaired uh, in, in some people. And that particular function um, starts to degrade before others do. And then, and then you become much more reliant on your expectations of the model rather than the information that's coming in. And then you, that can generate hallucinations. Um, but you only really think about these properties when you s have to build these networks that can recognize speech or recognize spatial things, and you realize what is so important about the differences. I would also add, like, one of the major departures in transformer architectures is that earlier, when people were trying to predict speech or, like, sequences in time, they were using recurrent neural networks, which were probably, like, closest thing you can get to what brains look like in, like, artificial neural networks. And the advance in transformers is that they got rid of that component and said, we do not need that. We can just do with these matrix multiplications and these attention heads. So it's like a major departure from what look like brain-like artificial units to like a completely different thing. Although people are trying to map that onto an RNN uh, recurrent neural network, but it's like that mapping is still incomplete and debated. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I wanted to move on now to to go back to the points you were mentioning earlier and pick up on those about the sort of about the risks inherent with these approaches, whether applied in a clinic or or even in academia, whether we're sort of being led down um, a blind alley or being misled about the way the brain works. Um, Rick, you've already sort of said sort of the the necessity of making our training data look like the things we actually want to test. So I think your example was you know if you if you just train on eyes in Western Europe and hope that you're network's going to work somewhere else, then actually you c you're basically trusting in blind faith. There's no reason to go. Um, I wonder whether one of the other two of you would like to sort of, whether you see there are any risks for us, both as scientists or as as practitioners in going this way. And maybe I'll, I'll give you a, 
a sort of, I don't know, a line to sort of start with. So I was talking to someone recently who said, oh, I'd never want um, an AI doctor because I don't really know why they made their decisions. And my immediate response was, do you know why your doctor made your decisions? <laughs> they could, you know, they could just say anything, and you'd be like, "Oh yeah, it's the it's the weird wibbly thing." Oh, thanks, doctor. But, Great. A yeah. but I think, but I think here the point, your friend. Um, I think, uh, and it's actually quite an important point. I've been now recently talking with a colleague here in UCL uh, Law, and the fact is, we live in a society in which uh, we need to be able to at least justify our decision. So if you do an accident, you do something, and you turn right, you make a decision, and you kill somebody, when you go in court, the people will ask, you'll have a lawyer, will ask, uh, why did you do that? And you're trying to give a motivation. Uh, we have a society in which intention intentionality matters. Because if I say, I did because I wanted to kill that guy, it's very <laughs> different from I did uh, to mm -hmm. just... Uh, um, so th th this is an issue that is actually incredibly important. In human brain architecture, we have this module that I happen to study quite a bit that is called metacognition, and is the fact that we are able to introspect what we do and verbally report. This module hasn't been very much of interest for AI, because even for human, you wonder, why do I even need that module? And you know, we can argue that we are social animals, we want to communicate, but see about things like what your friend was telling you, the fact that if an, a machine does something wrong, and it doesn't detect a bomb or whatever, it w because he has no access into the decision process, the thing that has happened in the neural network in a such high level that, uh, and the funny thing is there will be no engineering even, because the, the, the beast here is that these things work, but we don't know where they work and how they work. And the fact that you can't just say, yeah, you're right, maybe your doctor will come up with something, but we live in a society in which we not only do things, but we also in introspect what we have done and communicate with others. And I think this is going to be a massive problem if we carry on this EI ar mod architecture that will be, for legal reason, even if those cars are going to be better, it will be very hard to use them because when then they need to go to court, who are you going to bring to court? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the, the machine won't even be, we are just ignoring all this part of the architecture that is able to introspect. So I think it's more like a, you know, it seems funny, but actually, yeah, I, I, I think I would agree with your friend. Caswell's got no friends. <laughs> 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 All right. Can I just follow up on one of the? Uh, so something related to that. So a study I saw today, and I've seen there's several out there. Uh, when um, when people have tried to implement uh, deep learning and other AI technologies in the clinic, I, which seem to work super well, like the ophthalmology one, radiology ones, um, when they, they work better in many cases than consultants doing that job, and they can do it 24 hours a day. Um, they've often found that in the lab, they outperform the humans, but in the clinic, they're no different. And when they look into it, the reason, one of the reasons they're no different is because when they give a recommendation that the doctor would not have made, the doctor just overrules it yeah. and ignores it. And so, uh, really, the, the, this reasoning, this big ability to present its reasoning is probably going to be the only way that actually gets people to do the recommendation, to follow it, 
um, because e it may not actually make sense rationally, but it, practically um, they might not be useful unless they can do that. So my sort of take home, I guess, from that little bit of the discussion is we are not in danger yet of having our GPs replaced by a, what do we say? Chat GP. Chat GP. <laughs> I, that was, I get that wrong. What were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no T, yeah, chat GP. Um, but maybe that can lead us into a bit of a discussion of, um, I guess overall, what we're seeing is there's areas of huge potential, but it's still a really early field where there are huge challenges to overcome. So I guess from each of you, I'd really like to hear a minute or two about what you think the next 15 years holds for neuro AI in your particular areas. What are the, the things that you're most optimistic and excited will happen? You're starting with me? Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I'm most excited about um, Neuroscience has worked with very like sensory and motor systems, and that's where a lot of the research has been sort of confined. And we've used simple models to explain that, and that was all well and good. But now we're moving into this like era in which we're trying to understand more complex decision making and behavior in general. And I think currently AI is the only field which has models for that. And I'm very excited about marrying those ideas with like what we know happens in the brain and what we know what kind of representations exist in the brain and how brains do those things and what kind of architectures exist in the brain and i'm kind of excited to see that kind of sort of uh, sort of things coming together so that we can make sense of how complex behavior is produced by brains um, yeah okay so it already has impacted in a positive way my life personally that before I took, my, my wife is a native English speaker and I always had to ask her when I had to write an important document to proofread for me. Now I have just GDP <laughs> 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 to do that. <laughs> my wife seems very happy to don't need to do that <laughs> anymore for me. Uh, but jokes aside, it's exciting and uh, the problem is what's the goal here? And I think we need to keep separating the goal quite well. So my goal is understanding the human brain, how it works and things. And it's not like when planes start to go faster than bird, the field of ornithology has, is finished, <laughs> right? Is it really, and I think most of the problem comes from the confusion of the objective that we have. Um, what, as a neuroscientist that is interested in AI, I'm actually most interested, and even with my current work, I'm looking at it. I don't know if it's going to be close. I don't know if uh, about never trust is going to be in seven years, eight years. <laughs> I often joke with them is that those seven years keep moving. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like is that seven years is the ideal time if you want something that seems far, but not too far, but far enough that people I forget. So, uh, <laughs> so if you don't want to do something, say I'll do in seven years. So that seven <laughs> is the magic number. Um, so um, the things that I most, I didn't say at the beginning, what I actually do, I study value-based decision-making and is the decision that, for example, you've done a very strange value-based decision-making today, sitting down here in a dark room, listening, listening us rather than, I don't know, going to the cinema or doing something else. Uh, and I'm curious why you did that. Now, the thing is that unlike machine, at the end of tonight, you're not gonna get point for the decision you made, right? So you made this decision, you made a judgment call to do that rather than go to a restaurant or watching a movie, 
and it's not that casual at the end will tell her, you earned 1,000 points by doing <laughs> that. <laughs> the things though, instead machine, the way in which we train is exactly the opposite. That they always need to have a point at the end of the things they are being trained for. And my big, big question is, would we get to a point in which you construct your own value, while in machine at the moment, even the most sophisticated, we always give this very artificial exogenous value. You won the match, you get one point, and you get trained, but you never get point in life. You built the point in your own head. If you, if you do, probably you don't even do that. You know, tonight the decision has made you, have you made a good or right decision, is not going to hands up with the score of how, you, how, how many points you made. Now it means that you constructed the value of reality around the view. Now the question is, machines are really far away from that, and if you want to make them be more like flexible, like human, eh, then I need to start to do that. But that becomes a problem as well because can you imagine machines start to have a preference, liking and disliking things? Um, it could start to get, you know, human have a very strong preference. And according to their preference, they make very important action. Th so that's, that is a big question that <laughs> interests me. I have still no very much idea what will be the architecture, but also worries me a tiny bit. So the intersection with morals, essentially? Any, I, I mean, if you like ice cream, and you dislike Madame Bovary, anything in between, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, uh, um, and you know, you, you, you can hate people that are called Caswell. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like when, uh, when you built your own value, it's the only things you can do because we live in a world without tags, right? We, but then, uh, and we haven't even started to approach this problem. Uh, but sooner or later we should, and probably we will, because because the barrier will be evident that, as he was saying, the, the training finish, you, you you can train yourself because you can actually build your own value. And, and I, I'm curious how you do it, and shall we let the machine do, and will they do well? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just... Yes, yeah, I'm a psychopath myself. No, 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 no. It's <laughs> a super interesting question. Um, I guess in, in the psychiatry realm, I mean, the, the, bit I'm, the bits I'm most interested in is really understanding, you know, mental health disorders from a computational kind of perspective. Because I, th because, um, I think uh, it just is a much richer, deeper understanding of what they're about than any kind of very biological reductionist type understanding because it because when 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 you view people as having a model of the world um you can't avoid th all of their background all of their childhood all of their environment all of their social influences and and the biology that forms it and it's not just the you know it's not just the serotonin or whatever you know it's the whole thing and so um, understanding that is, a, is super interesting. But I think in the next 15 years, it'll take quite some time to get there. I think in the immediate future, um, the most progress is going to come from these kind of black box machine learning type approaches that just say, 
give this person this antidepressant or this person this antidepressant and it's not totally clear why but it seems to work uh, <laughs> um, but I mean, even that would be great for now um, I think there's something I should have told you at the beginning. We're going to get the audience to rate you afterwards. There is going to... No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it seems like, actually, what you've all done to a certain extent is draw a distinction between applying uh, applying these machine learning um, models as a tool, so, you know, diagnosing a thing or deciding whether that's a label of, I don't know, a cat or something. Um, and I think probably you'd all agree that that's already being useful in neuroscience. It's starting to be useful in the clinic. Uh, my lab use things like deep lab cut, which is a, basically an automatic way of labeling animals and boxes and things like that. And I think that's unambiguous. What's, what's kind of interesting is the way you've talked about using, um, using machine learning models to learn something about the brain, not just to like sort out your data, but you know, ooh, like, can I, can I look at how the machine learning models solve this problem or how it compresses data in RNN or a transformer and then make some inference about how the brain does that? And I think you, you sort of came the closest to saying that, yeah. Diksha. Is, do you, is that true? Do you, do you agree with that distinction? And are yeah. you optimistic about the second half? Yes, I think the first half, there's like no, no questions that it has been really useful. It has really helped us denoise the data, is how I would say it, or label it. And that's been incredibly useful. Everybody uses it. Uh, I think. And the second half is like using these models as models of the brain themselves. Uh, and I think there's appeal to that because up until now, up until the transformer architecture became popular, they had lots of inspirations, they had lots of properties that exist in the brain. So they were very useful. And especially like sort of drawing ex an example from my research, I found that uh, <coughs> sort of two brain areas which l had very similar representations but had very different responses when you perturb them. And this requires like a multi-region sort of uh, network which has multiple different neurons so that there can be robustness in that network, but also you can perturb specific projections from one brain to the other. So it requires this kind of architecture to be able to study it. So for my particular research, having these tools available to train such kind of big RNNs was really useful because I could make this model which replicated all the properties that I found empirically and then I could study it. I had like a fully observable system in which I could do all kinds of experiments and understand how it works and if there are any normative advantages to having this computation be performed this way. So for me it was like a really useful tool to advance. In, in this case it's both a model of the brain but also a tool mm. to study the neural processes. So yeah. Uh, and actually, I was really struck by something you said there, which reminded me strangely of a reviewer comment I once had. Um, but it was, was that? No. <laughs> you reviewer too. Uh, it was this, right? That, um, as you said, you had a model that you could sort of was fully observable. And, and, and there's often this sort of saying that people say, oh, why do you want to model the brain with a deep network? It's like another black box. But I think you'd agree, based on what you just said, that it's totally not. It's, if that's a black box, mate, if that's a black box, you've never tried to study the real <laughs> brain. Like, at least with a deep network, you, mm. can, you, know, you can look at what it's doing at any point in time, you can wind it backwards and forwards. And yeah, you, you know. But when it gets complex enough, <laughs> you need to be always, uh, uh, there's a story I love to say that is uh, a story from this Argentinian writer it was called Borges, that was the cartographer of the empire. And he says there existed an empire in which the art of cartography become so sophisticated that, that the map were more and more precise until one point one cartographer made the map of the empire that was as big as the empire in which every point on the map correspond to a point on the empire 
but they quickly realized that it was completely useless because it was larger as the empire. And since then, the art of cartography died in that. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the thing is, uh, uh, you are right. Uh, first, I think many people will be surprised to the fact that the, what she just said, that, that we actually do experiment on this machine. On this, so we build a network, but because we haven't built into it what it does, then we need to test it, almost like we lesion the network and things. And I agree with you, it's simpler, doesn't scream when you do <laughs> things. <laughs> and the thing is, though, that we'll we will be have to be very, and it's almost like a philosophical, epistemological question, w if interesting things started to only raise a certain degree of complexity, we are back on square one. We are now on a map that is the size of the empire. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my know, w uh, you know, the good things about, yeah, uh, sorry, I might just. No, no, uh, I, think uh, yeah. I think the half you're talking about is that once we have an RNN, we still can't fully understand. It's still kind of a black box in the way we don't understand exactly how it works, exactly what it's doing. And th so there's a gap in having the tools to be able to understand that. But from where I stand, I think developing those tools is a prerequisite for understanding the brain. So I think it's almost pushing us in the right direction of like, if you have this kind of network of balls, how do you study them? How do you back engineer what's going on? And this is helping us move in that direction and hopefully it will come back to just doing that with the brain data that we collect and we collect more and more of it. So to me, it's a kind of like a useful detour, so to say, of like one kind of class of models which is inspiring the right kind of methods that we can use. Um, and I agree with you, yeah. 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 It's a great box, let's <laughs> <say>. <laughs> for now. It's a golden black box. <laughs> Rick, do you have anything to add to that? <laughs> no, no, no. That <laughs> what, <laughs> color? What, what color are you going for? Purple? Beige, beige. 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 <laughs> so mm. I'm aware we're quick. Actually, time's going faster than I thought in this, this first half. And so I want to get to, I want to ask you, maybe this might be our last big science question before we switch to the, uh, the interval and then on to the, the social aspect. What are the big, what's the big, like, could each of you just take, well, you've got a minute each, basically. <laughs> uh, what's the, starting over there, what's the sort of next big question in your field related to neuro AI? Um, hmm. Medium-sized question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think it's going to be, people are starting to find these these mysterious signatures that seem to split patients up into groups that might respond to an antidepressant, one kind or another. And then the big question is, w what's the mechanism? And, um, and so uh, answering those questions means having the traditional approaches like animal models and doing being able to perform causal inf interventions in those animal models, but with all of, but, but trying to do it in such a translational way that you can marry up the, the m machine learning results, the humans and the animal models. So there's even more kind of complicated to d get them all in line. But I think that is the, yeah, to get to discover the mechanisms behind these decisions would be, would be most useful. Because presumably that way more treatments lie as well. I think, I don't know if this is one question, uh, but I think it would be like, given a model, an RNN of a sort, 
can we figure out exactly how it's doing what it's doing? So given something like a weight matrix, some architecture basically which is embedded in weight matrix, can we can we sort of uh, glean from that what function it's implementing, how how it's implementing the dynamics? I think would lead to big advances in neuroscience. Um, and it's the question to answer. Yeah. <laughs> One I mentioned where where value came from that I think is something that interests me a lot. I would say another one is uh, how we learn the, the right prior. I know it sounds very cryptical what I'm saying, but most of machine learning has been trying to avoid to add prior information, let all the data learn. And that comes to the problem we discussed it tonight. If you want to start with zero prior, you need a lot of data. Uh, human use prior and uh, you have a prior information. There is a famous case of uh, one Tesla that crashed in a, in a, in a car and because they, their detecting system didn't see the car anymore and you would say actually that their camera was better than the eye so a human wouldn't have seen it but human would have known the object would not disappear. So human had that prior and the car didn't have that prior. Uh, how we learn the right prior because prior are really useful if are the right one. If you learn the wrong prior, you are kind of screwed, or a better <laughs> word, mm. they start with F. Mm. Um, then you are really, the big question is how we human, how we learn the right prior. That, that I think would be the, did I explain enough well what means? Learn your prior well in life. <laughs> That's uh, the thing you tell to your kids, it's like, kiddo, Learn your right prior before <laughs> entering in the world. <laughs> there we go, some sound advice to finish the first part of this session. Um, thank you ever so much to our panelists. That's been an amazing discussion. We will now have a short interval, about 20 minutes. back everyone first of all and welcome back to our panel um, we will start with um, some questions audience questions thanks for uh, for filling these out and I unless it says otherwise I will read out the question and invite each of the panel members to comment with their answer so will we get a AGI defined as an AI that can do everything Caswell does. Wait, someone wants to make you no redundant. Um, before, we get, <laughs> before we get close to answering the hardest questions in neuroscience. I feel like likely, I think we'll have very sophisticated automation systems. We already have them and I think they're gonna get more sophisticated very quickly. I don't know if they'll replace Caswell, but they can do a lot of, probably will be able to do a lot of things. And I think it's probably gonna be longer road to figuring out exactly how our brain and how human brains work, which is like an even longer road. Yeah. Next <laughs> one. Are you optimistic about the hierarchical predictive coding theory exploring the neurobiological basis of autism and schizophrenia in the future? That sounds like one for you. You brought to yourself. Yeah, so I think, I think I th uh, this is something I worked on in my PhD and then a bit subsequently. Uh, for, for people who don't know what the question's about, it's basically this, uh, uh, 
one thing that we think the brain does is this uh, process called Bayesian inference, where you use some priors, you use some experience <coughs> that you already have to interpret new data coming in. And this is much more efficient than trying to figure out just purely from new data coming in uh, what's going on all the time. And uh, this hierarchical predictive coding is one kind of network that can do this, essentially. And uh, so the idea was that this network, if it was imbalanced in some way, it might go wrong in, uh, it, it might lead to the sim some of the symptoms that we see in schizophrenia and also in autism. Um, so I think, I think it does go some way to explaining uh, some of the symptoms for sure. But I think um, there's a lot more that the brain does that, we, that, that you can't, fit into a simple kind of predictive coding scheme. So so th this this predictive coding hierarchy is a good way of explaining the kind of perceptual bits of the brain. Um, but then the decision-making part and the more sophisticated kind of memory parts, uh, so any, everything involving hippocampus, prefrontal cortex, is probably some doing something very different. And I think we need very uh, different models to to think about those if that makes sense thank <laughs> you um i love this question and it's one that i might actually be able to comment on which makes me happy <laughs> i know something about what's happening in neuro ai so are you aware of any machine learning approaches being developed that can predict the effects of specific drugs at the preclinical stage so for example can we use um, AI and machine learning to accelerate the transition of drugs into clinical testing, but also lower the risk of adverse effects. And how close do you add? Do you how close do you think we are to the development or realization of something like this? Uh, I guess this is one for me again. Sorry. So yes, I do. People are trying to do this. It's definitely not my area of expertise, but I've seen a talk somewhere. I can't even remember who or where it was, but but people are trying to do exactly this in order to, um, yeah, they're trying. So what they're trying to do is is uh, enter all of the compounds that are known that have synth synthesized by all different pharmaceutical companies, and then enter all of the different paradigms and chemical properties and tests that have been done on all of these compounds. Because there's maybe 100 different tests or 100, 200 different tests, but only probably 10 or 20 are done on each compound. And so if you want to then predict the outcome of a test on a compound that hasn't been done on that compo compound, but has been done on ones with a similar shape, you might be able to do that. But obviously this is a really complicated thing because you've got hundreds of variables on one side and you've got these complex structures that interact in different ways on the other. So um, yes, th they're trying to do exactly that with drug discovery to speed it up and, and to re repurpose existing drugs, yeah. And maybe I can comment quickly because it gives me an excuse to plug what will be our next pre-recorded episode, which is that this morning, Steve, who's our other co-host, sadly not here today, interviewed Sonia Gandhi at the Crick Institute. Now she is working on Parkinson's disease and they have used methods to grow patient cells in the dish and then used AI and machine learning to predict whether the particular properties of a cell 
are linked to that person's clinical symptoms. So although it's not exactly the same, I can kind of see in the long term, there could be an option to combine these approaches and say, well, look, this, this person's cells tells us they are likely to develop the disease at this age and have these symptoms. And therefore, this person is more likely to be res respondent to these particular therapies. Um, so good, I feel like I managed to contribute one thing about neuroAI today. Um, so I will ask this question and then I'll hand over to Caswell for the for the rest. How important, I think this one might be for you, Deeksha, how important are the parameters of an artificial neural network? Is it important for neuroscientists to study and refine the parameters in order to improve the performance or the outcomes of the artificial neural network? they're incredibly important like there's definitely like some sloppy regimes in which the function the output you're looking for will be present but they can be i think the problem is that those parameters don't tend to be continuous that you can get good behavior in this very distinct set of parameters and then also in this very other sort of space which you don't expect it to produce that output so that produces special kinds of challenges because you're getting very different solutions to the same problem um, and it's incredibly important to like actually look at what kind of parameters you find the solutions you're looking for and then uh, try to study if those correspond to what we expect in the brain, if they like uh, sort of match the expectations we have. Um, it's kind of hard to answer this question in like a general way, but yes, parameters are important and we should be looking at them, yeah. <laughs> I, I totally agree. By the way, this is one of my massive bugbears. <laughs> You know, obviously not all networks behave like the brain. And if we can understand the set of like the parameter space where they do behave like the brain, then we've just learned something really important about the parameters that apply to the brain. Anyway, yeah. first I should read out the questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I totally agree. So I have um two really good questions. So um do you think we have a research sunk costs with AI for neuroscience? Are we focusing too much on drawing parallels between the brain and AI at the cost of exploring new and different theories of what the brain is doing? There was uh, something said that at the time that I think Rumsfeld said, it doesn't sound an intellectual to, uh, to quote, but he said there are known unknown and unknown unknown. And the most interesting are the unknown unknown. Anyway, he said as an excuse to invade Iraq and it wasn't really like, uh, but there is something profoundly philosophical into that, that we do not know where things are coming from because we, the unknown unknown, you don't, we don't even know that we don't know. And uh, maybe the, the answer to that question is we don't, it could be uh, that this might be a completely red herring of, of wrong framework and somehow the right framework will arrive, but it's very difficult to answer because it's gonna be probably an unknown unknown that we don't know that we we should know something. It was good, <laughs> it was good. Uh, so this is our last written down question, but there will be, if anyone's got any questions they want to ask after this, there's gonna be opportunity. Um, so this question starts, uh, I don't know anything about machine learning, but decision making is adapted to your experiences. And I think around the world, different cultures and values teach different forms of deci making decision. If these models are developed with a Western point of view, are we in a sense ignoring or marginalizing other populations? i.e. are we reinforcing a single point of view in areas that can't relate to these decisions or where this reasoning isn't applied? Anybody want to take that it's one? It's true. It's very yes. true. <laughs> yeah. And there are studies that show that 
there is and there is a real problem. Mm. Even just in the training set we're using, it's like we're using English speaking, internet, and uh, even face and thing. There is a huge problem. In fact, one of the biggest issues they have, the chat JTP or these other things, sometimes seems very intelligent, but sometimes they start to become really cold and no answering you. And the reason is because this 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 uh, this model have been trained on racist stuff and thing, and now this company, in order to don't embarrass themselves, had somebody in engineering. Actually, what they do is really strange, and I know that because different reason. I was in an ethic board, and thing. so you you actually have people in the in other country that they they have to mark if the answer is offensive, and then uh, they handcraft out of the model. And that's his reason mm. because of the training. And there is a lot of moral issue there as well because also what is offensive in a country might be different than other things. Plus there is this neo-colonial thing that they those work is being done in country where it's cheap, that labor. Mm. So super problem. Somebody else want to add? But, um, yeah. Yeah, and and it's something we need to, to deal with. It's very strange. You'll be you'll be surprised trying to get one of these general uh, uh, linear model to tell you something's uncomfortable. It will refuse, not because he can't do it. He can do it, and probably will do in a very biased, offensive, racist way. Has been handcrafted out that things, and that's a big issue. Yeah. So I wanted to add to that in the sense that when you're looking at the clinic and you have a system that's making a decision, I, I don't know anything about this stuff, sort of stuff, but I imagine like it's been trained to be unbiased. However, different populations kind of normally have doctors that know the reality of that population. And so when you're making a diagnosis, again, I'm not a doctor, I imagine the living situation of that person is taken into account in the kind of therapies that they can do and in the kind of things that you prescribe to them. So if you're teaching it without barriers, then is it really applicable to situation in which people do have barriers to what they can access? Can I just repeat the, summarize the question just for the recording? Um, I think it's a great point. So it's around, use of AI in diagnosis and actually the fact that people from different populations may have barriers to what they can access. So how do we incorporate that into a system which we know has bias? Is that a good it was more to that. There summary? was more to that. If I yeah, yeah, no, uh, there was just saying like, you know, a doctor that lives have experience in that population may know things that this EI system that have been trained in London they do not have, and, uh, and we are very brushly ignoring that at our, our own peril. I, I, is that complete your question? Yeah? Yes, and so you have the answer, I imagine. So there's a very pertinent example of that, but, but, but the potential for that in, um, in uh, schizophrenia psychosis world, which I live in. And so, um, so black British people are more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia psychosis if they present the same symptoms that, that, that white British people do. 
um, and they're more likely to be uh, sectioned, so, so put on a ward against their will and various other things. And um, and obviously, if all of that information goes into your training data, which is all of the training data that you're you know going to use, then that uh, training data will not be unbiased. You know, it won't. Be, it, it will be. It will be the opposite of unbiased. Uh, it will. It will be much more likely to diagnose schizophrenia or psychosis or whatever if it if it sees a black person than a than a white person. Um, and so, uh, and some of these some of these biases we're aware of. Some of them we're not. And so, some of them you could try and tune out uh, in this way that Benedetto just described. But there may, may be many that you might not, and and um, so, yeah, it, it it is a yeah, it's a very real problem. But to reassure you on this count, I mean, on this particular count, I think we're very unlikely to be using these kinds of methods to diagnose psychiatric problems anytime soon, uh, because there's so many other problems. This is just one of the millions of problems. <laughs> Um, but you know there are there are scenarios where thing, thing, thing you know legal scenarios where potentially legal processes could be potentially replaced by these AI um, machines where um, you definitely don't want these biases to creep in and lots of uh, lots of you know, credit scores, credit checks, all these kinds of uh, automated processes um, make decisions that are unaccountable and may be due to biases in the training set. So this stuff is a very, very live issue. Um, totally agree. Yeah. Got a question down here. I suppose this kind of links in with, with your question. Um, you briefly touched upon how AI models can be used in areas where, for example, there might not be the same amount of doctors available. Um, but I feel like this creates another problem, um, seeing as models have to be trained based on data that you get from a certain area, if you want to do it unbiased or based on that area. But if there's not the right amount of, say you want to use it for this purpose, say there's not enough doctors around to give you that data, then how would you train models? I suppose it kind of feeds into the same problem, but how would you look into solving that? I'm going to repeat that quickly for, for the record. <laughs> uh, so, so the point is basically, because we've already got this sort of resource disparity between places, both in terms of doctors and other resources, how are we just going to compound that basically by training, training these models? Like, you know, if there's a region that hasn't got many GPs, whatever, no training data, therefore they're underrepresented, therefore the cycle continues. How do we get out of that? I mean, I can give a very quick answer. So, so there's this field called transfer learning, which is really all about how we can, how we can keep what we want to what we want and discard what we don't want in in new scenarios and um and and also funders like welcome are realizing that this issue is a massive priority and they're so and so they're funding much more research in resource poor areas primary research in resource poor areas to provide these kinds of data sets that would be useful so i think th those dual approaches would be very helpful great have we got any? Oh, there's a question there. Hi. Um, I just wanted to know what, uh, what sort of impact neuro AI has on the world of dementia. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to repeat it again, but um, 
what impact does neuro AI have on the world of dementia? We're surrounded by experts for this one. <laughs> well, I'm surrounded. Who'd like to say something? You're going to get their time, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does it, uh, anyone else have it? I can, it's not really my, uh, dementia is my area, but I'm more of a cell biologist. So I can say that we are putting in grants which are so far unfunded, but eventually <laughs> we would like to use machine learning and AI to see what we can't see. So we are doing a lot of cell biology. We are growing um, neurons from patients who have dementia or don't have dementia. And we look for specific things in these cells that we know are associated with the disease, but it means that we are probably missing things that we don't know what to look for or they are too subtle for us to notice by eye. And so what we would like to do is take the large data sets that we're accumulating through gathering images and images and images. You know, my people in my group, one of my groups here, I can see a nodding away, spend hours <laughs> on the microscope. <laughs> so we, we develop these really rich banks of image data and we think, well, if we can ask um, via machine learning can you cluster these into which are the dementia cells and which are not the dementia cells, that might allow us to detect changes that are happening earlier in the disease. And I think one thing we all agree on in the dementia world is that if we are to develop new disease modifying therapies for dementia, we need to be intervening as early as possible. So actually those early changes that we might not be able to detect, but really powerful microscopy may be able to, will be really valuable. I guess the other area where I could see utility, which is not, not my area at all, but something that maybe Rick can comment on, is around things like analyzing MRI scans and things like that. So we can see, you know, we have been, the f uh, Royal We, I haven't done any of this, but in the field, the Emily's <laughs> doing it all. Um, no, in the field, you know, there's some really nice studies that have followed the natural history of dementia in people who carry genetic mutations. And these are the only individuals where we can really say, we know that you will get dementia. And when you do get dementia, we know what's causing it. And what we can see is that there's huge kind of structural changes to the brain decade before somebody develops symptoms. Now, whether we can actually expand that using machine learning and AI to look in the general population rather than these really rare genetic families, and whether we can use that to even move earlier to see things happening, you know, before, again, before we can kind of detect it with non-machine learning methods is something that I think is really exciting. Um, so yeah, not quite my area, but that that they're the two kind of themes where I see the most potential, if you like. Um, Rick, I don't know if you want to correct. I'm happy to be corrected. No, well, I, I think to add to that. No, no, no. I mean, uh, um, the interesting thing that that makes me think of is, uh, you know, it's. <laughs> would you want to know if you were going to get Alzheimer's in 20 years? Like you could. It's an engineering challenge, but the clinical use. Uh, For it's now. another question. For oh yeah, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. When <laughs> uh, uh, once the if there's a disease-altering treatment, yeah. you for sure you do. Um, but um, yeah, it's a, there's often there's a, there's often just a, there's often a divergence between the engineering challenge and the kind of pragmatic. I 100% agree, and I think you know we 
hopefully our next live event will be on Alzheimer's disease. I've just committed us to it as Caswell looks at me in horror. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's one of the things that we are seeing is we're starting to see success in clinical trials. And what I mean by success is we're seeing disease modification so we can slow the rate of decline in someone with Alzheimer's. But we need to know who to give those therapies to. And the earlier we give them, the more successful they will be. But actually, I agree with you. Do we want to be telling people, oh yeah, we can see these changes in your brain, but we can't yet give you these treatments because they're not approved. So there is a kind of balance there. I, I completely agree. Mm. Question at the back there. Oh, thank you. machine learning models is that they can't kind of understand why they did a specific decision but oftentimes when we think about metacognition it's so intertwined with consciousness so when you think about the whole metacognition in machine learning can you separate that from the whole consciousness debate with ai i guess i'll answer that can you summarize <laughs> the question before you answer yeah. it please first of all i need to summarize how wonderfully you managed to pronounce my name I normally get told Benedito and things. Your Benedetto was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, you say that uh, uh, a very a question that is very dear to me as well as a problem is I spoke about metacognition and the fact that, that you know this architecture may miss metacognition and maybe may be useful to have it for all the other things. But then there is a very strong link between metacognition. I mean, it's um, unfortunately we don't have steep. Fleming here, that is Mr. Metacognition. Um, people like Steve and other people have been thinking a lot about the relation between metacognition and consciousness. And so the question, the natural question is, if we're going to uh, have eventually system with metacognition, then the question is, how are we going to make conscious being on the way? And uh, it's a very interesting question. Um, there is a big reason I always uh, see the difference between the way I studied metacognition. I've been coming from economics. I was much more practical in the study of metacognition um, compared with people like Steve that studied in their own sake. And from uh, because you know in economics there is always you have to convince economists they are very smart and very stubborn why you want to study metacognition and. Uh, and uh, and this, I was always trying to find the reason why metacognition is for, and uh, metacognition can be for maybe correct because you know it comes after you made a decision. That's a strange thing about metacognition. It's almost too late to correct what have you done. But the fact is, we don't do things only once in life. We repeat them. And uh, now the thing is, the fact that the s complex system has a is almost like what's the point of every consciousness? You know, philosophers have debated this thing. It's not like evolution likes to make conscious things. There may be there is a bar there is a point in which to have that sophisticated level of control, you need a second order system, that is what metacognition is, and then consciousness is gonna become a byproduct of that. And some people that work in AI that I know, they, they, 
they told, you know, if consciousness is important, it's going to erase on the way to it. I feel that there are very good reasons why, you know, if evolution, <laughs> evolution hasn't endowed us with consciousness because seeing red, red is, is an interesting experience. So it might have been a very strong pressure for it. And we're going to face the same pressure in those artificial agents. And I think we are already facing it because one of the points I've made in some article that the reason why this human can learn with little data, you know the things I've been keeping telling tonight, learning with little data, one thing really helps to learn with little data is having this second order system. Um, and eventually one system will learn with little data, so eventually we're going to face the fact that, that we need to add this second order system. And then it's going to just, you know, generate proto-consciousness, maybe, but maybe wait when Steve comes back and it will finish <laughs> to answer the question. <laughs> keep talking about Steve. Like Steve is almost like, uh, <laughs> yeah, I miss him. <laughs> and one of my best friends, I just like, uh, I'm a terror. Steve, if you're listening to me now on the podcast. <laughs> we don't want Steve to think that we can't cope without him, though. So Haswell okay. and I are doing just fine. <laughs> Any other audience questions? It's like Caswell with the hair blonde. <laughs> <laughs> the question at the back there. Uh, hi, it has been brought up quite a few times today that um, AI and kind of what we can do with AI and what happens is that learning can like what humans can do is generalize learning very well. Uh, and um, as you guys said, a child can only like can see three or four horses and knows that anything that looks like that is a horse, whereas for AI it needs much, much larger data sets for that. Are there any psychiatric conditions where generalizing is impaired and can the AI help us particularly understand these? Are you happy to summarize the question, Rick? Uh, so we've, yeah, we're, we're, we've talked a lot about generalization of learning. And so the question is, are there any psychiatric conditions where this kind of generalization is impaired? Um, so, uh, um, I mean, maybe so not, because so really it's uh, we really need generalization. I mean, right? in, in, well, in some, con yeah, well, so in some conditions, there's overgeneralization. So there's too much, not too little. So, for example, in post traumatic stress disorder, a really unpleasant experience, say a red car crashes into you when you're little. Um, means that subsequently when you see other red cars or you're near a roundabout, you get the same panic response that you had back then. Um, and that, But that's an overgeneralization response um, rather than an undergeneralization one. There are, uh, there are things that the hippocampus does that definitely are not there or, or severely impaired in schizophrenia and psychosis. So, for example, I don't know about general. I don't know if anyone has ever tested generalization itself properly. It would be an interesting experiment to to do. I mean, it's a too broad a concept to test in one experiment. But but um, they've 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 tried coupling different inferences together. So learning that A and B go together and B and C go together. And if you learn those things then your your hippocampus also learns that a and c will go together even though it hasn't seen those things together um which is 
what I think your entire project is. <laughs> 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 so, I, so yeah. but, and, but patients with psychosis and schizophrenia can't do that. They, they're really bad at that. And we, we do know that. But that's not the, the, the main problem f for them. But it is, an, it, it is an indication that their hippocampus is not, is not working properly. So I imagine there would be some generalization problem as well. I don't, do you have uh, a Yeah, I was going to add that some of the generalization problems that I was thinking of when talking about it are like even more bizarre than what we see in like human psychiatric conditions. So if you change a pixel, neural network will detect it's a diff totally different thing, even if it's looking at a rat, what very clearly is a rat. So it's like very brittle sort of failure of generalization that I was thinking of. And there are these more complex, interesting scenarios, which I don't know if somebody's looking at that. I'm sure they are, uh, but yeah. Super, thank you. Well, we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, thank you so much for all your questions. Um, we were having a slight panic before that there would be no questions, <laughs> and now I can <laughs> see there's too many. <laughs> but it's brilliant to have such engagement. Because we're coming to the end, I really don't want us to miss the opportunity to hear a little bit about the career journeys of our panelists. And I think this is the other wonderful thing about Brain Stories, is what we've heard so far from our previous episodes is everyone takes a different path to arriving in their research area. So maybe we can just spend a couple of moments each. Maybe I'll start with you, Benedetto, talking about your career journey. How come you first became interested in the brain and what brought you to where you are now? It's actually when I was at the beginning, I used not beginning, a few years ago, I used to I did a stand-up comedy about <laughs> <laughs> my <laughs> journey. <laughs> it was, so if you want to know really about the journey with all the funny bit, it's there. Uh, most of the things are through experience or some for comedic effect are exaggerated. Um, very strange. This is the beauty of neuroscience. You cannot reach here from very, very strange paths in um, I started to, st so m my mom had a pharmacy and in Italy was almost like, almost uh, because there is a high unemployment in my area, it was almost like, oh, you're lucky, you're going to have a job as a pharmacist. And that things, I was dreading these things a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I, but I really liked chemistry and things, so I tried to do the only degree I could do that they didn't allow me to go into pharmacy. It was a very convoluted <laughs> plan, <laughs> <laughs> studying the same things, but uh, with a degree that didn't uh, allow me to be stuck in a, in a little pharmacy in south of Italy. And then uh, I started to get really into the molecular biology, developmental biology, and I came here to do a PhD in a completely naive way. I it was a Wellcome Trust PhD, but I didn't even know the Wellcome you don't write uh, with uh, you write with two hell, so I thought it was just a very welcoming program for <laughs> <laughs> I just arrived here thinking it was UCL welcomes you. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure that they took me because my English was so poor that they thought this guy must be a genius, he didn't have time <laughs> to study English. In during the interview I, I even say there was this protein it was called FGF four, I say FGF quattro. <laughs> and people were looking at me. Sounds so bad to, to <laughs> be honest. <laughs> 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 I, I need to shorten the story, but then this program forced the welcoming program <laughs> forced <laughs> you <laughs> to 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 do things that weren't uh, out of your comfort zone. Because I was sure I was coming here to do molecular biology, but they forced it to you to do something different, and that's a great thing because it forced me 
to do something that I wouldn't have done that was uh, neuroimaging and I went there mostly because the building looked nice and then actually <laughs> I actually thought it was actually fun and then in the in the PhD again there is so many points in life in my life but I think in life of everywhere things just go in a very very strange way I was working on attention nothing was really working everything was really not going well and then I watched the movie like Beautiful Mind and uh, and I liked it a lot I read the biography <laughs> Somehow I stumbled on, the, 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 I was searching about John Nash on the website and I actually stumbled on Kahneman and the framing effect. I didn't know what it was. Then I come up with an experiment. Along the line, six months later, I get Kahneman emailing me and say, I've read your study on the framing. I want to meet you in London. So things <laughs> could have gone in a completely different way. <laughs> and so embrace the chaos. That's my suggestion <laughs> don't plan too much and uh, you know maybe I've been lucky but uh, sometimes sometimes things go without your control trying to do what you find fun and be able maybe this is the only advice I wanted to become a Pope when I was little so I'm good <laughs> in giving advice <laughs> <laughs> no I want because my mom told me I asked my mom where the Pope keep his wallet and she say, the Pope doesn't have a wallet. And I say, how does he pay for it? I mean, we're in Italy. <laughs> so Pope is on television every day. And they say, there are some other people pay for him. And I thought, this is a great job. <laughs> 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 you don't have a wallet and everybody pays for you. <laughs> uh, so anyway, then uh, I discovered to become a Pope, I become a priest and become boring, old. So I like the only, I should have become in the middle age when you just become Pope. Anyway, my only advice is <laughs> be honest with yourself. There will be some things you might be good at it and some people not very good at it. So I really wanted to do molecular biology, but I'm terrible with my hands. I'm the clumsiest person in the world. And I was fighting against it for a long time. Sometimes you just need to accept and you just like, don't think as a sunk cost. You spend that money on that and things. Just maybe you need to change and there might be some things I would have been at, you know, pretty terrible with my very poor motor skill and then I discovered doing computational modeling you can have really poor, actually compared to my computational colleague I'm actually <laughs> <laughs> sophisticated <laughs> and wealthy. <laughs> I'll pass to you. Diksha, any aspirations to be the Pope when you were a <laughs> child? Or did you <laughs> have a different <laughs> no. path? So I grew up in Delhi in India and um, I was always very interested in biology. I didn't want to be a medical doctor. So if like you're interested in biology, parents tell you you've got to be a doctor and I didn't want to be that at all. So I just did what everybody else was doing around me, which is like prepare for this engineering exam. So I don't know if you know, there's like these six engineering colleges in India, which are like highly reputable. And anybody who wants to get a job just tries to get into those universities. Um, so I was preparing for that. Um, and I got into an engineering exam and I studied engineering undergrad. But in the back of all of this, um, I had this like sort of, uh, when biking around in the city, I had this like sort of awareness of the limits of my, so to say, consciousness and free will in which like I would avoid a pothole, but I would know that I didn't see that pothole bef even before I sort of averted and like kept riding. So I was very interested in how that happens. So I was reading some philosophy at the time through which I made my way into like pop neuroscience. And then in undergrad, I met a c 
group of people who were interested in neuroscience and we like had a small group called Science Coffee House where we would chat about these things. And um, so I developed this parallel interest while studying my regular engineering things. And then in my final year, I got to study with this uh, professor who was actually studying robotics, but he was interested in how robots could learn language and learn from interactions in the world. So that gave me like a more of an insight into how we can study these things about how do humans develop, learn these things. So I applied, at that point I was very keen on interacting with real brains. So I applied for like PhD programs and that and got lucky and got into one and then worked with actual rodent brains, recorded with them, sort of like perturbed them, studied them. And now I'm here, yeah, it was very sort of in a way, very straightforward path, but for a while it looked like there was no path for me to get into that, yeah. Thank you, Rick. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so at school, I, yeah, I had no idea, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I didn't even know if I wanted to do science, sciences or, or kind of English and stuff. Uh, I chose sciences and then I kind of went, I kind of copied my friends instead of <laughs> ignoring my friends and, went and did medicine. And then, um, and then starting to do that, I got more and more interested in the brain because I just found it more interesting than all the other organs. <laughs> and I thought uh, I w wanted to do neurology at first, but then when we actually did, uh, and so I read a lot of kind of neurology books. I read lots of Oliver Sacks books. I don't know if you're familiar with Oliver Sacks, but uh, they're fantastic books. You should read them. But then when I met some neurologists and I met some psychiatrists, I discovered that Oliver Sacks thought he was a neurologist, but he was actually a psychiatrist uh, <laughs> trapped <laughs> in a neurologist's body. <laughs> 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 like a lot of your old colleagues, I would say. Um, and, um, and really, uh, I, I, I did a psychiatry placement with uh, a fantastic... A mentor, uh, this woman Mary Robertson, who used to work. She was an expert in Tourette syndrome, who used to work at the National Hospital, and she was just super inspiring and su very, very encouraging, and um, and really just completely captivated my interest all of a sudden, and, and made me. Re and I met people with delusions on the ward and hallucinations. And I just found these. You want to begin the Pope? <laughs> You're right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> well, they were the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just found it was so. I, I just thought it was such an interesting question about how these things arose and um, could we do any better in, in trying to treat them than we're doing at the moment. And so ever since then, I've been super interested in that. But then the. But then I didn't actually do any research for a long time. I qualified and I worked as a doctor for s uh, seven, eight years. Um, and I kind of knew I wanted to do research, but I didn't really know w which group or what to do. And I just kind of wait waited. And then um, I ended up emailing lo various... Uh, I did this MSc in uh, philosophy of m mental disorder and stuff at King's. Um, and... Uh, then I st and, and then I read some of Carl Friston's stuff, who who uh, who works at UCL, and um, that I found super interesting. And I emailed him, and I emailed a bunch of other uh, people around uh, neuroscience, uh, kind of investigators around London, just asking them, uh, "Do you have any places?" And and to my astonishment, uh, loads of them said, "Yes, come meet me." Uh, like uh, a medical student emailing consultants. 
is like scum of the earth. They're not interested. <laughs> you know, they wouldn't give you the you know the last breath. But the but 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 PIs are generally keen to hear f from new blood because uh, you might you be. Think you'll do things. Like yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cheap uh, labour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the value function is is different. So then uh, <laughs> I uh, yeah yeah, and so then um, yeah, that that's how I got into the that. PhD and then it's just yeah it's taken off ever since but there was no grand plan it was all just following things that were interesting so yeah my advice would be to find things that really you find interesting and motivating so expose yourself to as much different stuff as you can and then when you find something like that that you like don't hold back about getting in touch with people and and putting yourself out there and finding out what what it's like to do that fantastic so we're, we're almost exactly out of time, <laughs> but on Brain Stories, we always end with the same question. I'm just going to ask it to each of you <laughs> in turn. Uh, I'm going to start down this end now. No, I really <laughs> you need to think problem. of it. Okay, let's start down there. <laughs> so what's your favourite fact about the brain, Rick? Um, so, I d yeah, I, I don't know ab about one fact, but one very exciting thing, which I read two weeks ago, uh, which is the most exciting fact at the moment, was um, there's a researcher called Helen Mayberg in New York who have for 25 years has been putting deep brain stimulating electrodes in people's brains to try and cure uh, them of intractable depression. And with mixed success over the years, and uh, she's just published in Nature this study showing that they've applied some machine learning methods to these the readouts from these electrodes because you can record as well as stimulate. And they showed that you can uh, predict the onset of depression one or two weeks in advance in these patients from this EEG readout um, from relatively simple um, re uh, uh, properties of the data. And uh, that is pretty exciting and cool and potentially quite something. So that is my most exciting fact that at the moment. That is a pretty good fact, I've yeah. got to say. <laughs> Deeksha? So my fact, the preface to my fact is that a brain has 86 billion neurons. That's not the fact. The fact is that each of these neurons is actually equivalent to a five to eight layer deep neural network. So they did this modeling of like checking if you take input output function of a single cortical pyramidal neuron, then how, much, how many layers and how many neurons do you need to be ca able to capture all of these input-output mappings? And turns out you need at least a 1,000 neurons connected in five layers at least to be able to capture it. So that's, that's like a window the, into the complexity of the brain. So well, now cool. my favorite fact. <laughs> Is it about the Pope? <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking now only the Pope <laughs> in my head. My favorite part about the brain is also probably the most embarrassing things in neuroscience <laughs> that we spend every day a chunk of our life creating imaginary world, fantastic world in our head when we are asleep. And the fact that today was being said in order to convince somebody you need the narrative, the fact that we are such narrative animal and we are not just hallucinating with images, we create amazing narrative will happen tonight to all of us multiple times and we know F nothing about it. <laughs> we don't study it 
because we feel embarrassed after, after Freud to study it. So there is this uh, almost mm -hmm. a stigma that you look a bit nut if you study it. We don't even know how to study it, but we didn't even try to be perfectly honest. And this to me is a fascinating fact and probably the most embarrassing mm -hmm. things in modern neuroscience that such big, how it's called Institute of Cognitive Neuroscience, this is a big cognitive thing that happen in all our heads every single day and we know so little about it good what a way to end that's amazing <laughs> so just remains for me to say thank you so much to our panel thank you very much thank you so much to our audience for coming and seeing us this went better than i expected anyway <laughs> and um, also thanks to all the producers and the people who are making this happen behind the scenes because there's a, a, a lot of them and it wouldn't work without them so thank you